Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes you're hard at work trying to solve a problem and you realize you are really, really missing the big picture. An example, about 100 years ago, Americans went, as they often still do, to county offices and town clerks to fill out forms to get married. But at that time, in most places, interracial marriage was not allowed. We had these marriage clerks, right, who were county clerks who were basically making decisions. Is this person in this category and therefore they can get married to this person in this category or, you know, what's going on? That's Laura Gomez. She's a professor at UCLA School of Law. And she says in the 1920s in Los Angeles, clerks had a problem. Filipinos were a growing population in the area. But the Philippines, which sits south of Taiwan, north of Indonesia, so it's squarely in Asia, well, it had been colonized by the Spanish beginning in the 1500s. There was a puzzle because they weren't specifically mentioned in the anti-miscegenation laws. So were they going to be treated as Chinese and therefore not able to marry white people, or were they going to be treated as white and therefore it wasn't going to be an issue? Leon Lampton was the Marriage License Bureau chief in L.A., and he was trying to follow a relatively new California law prohibiting Asians from marrying white people. But, as Gomez suggests, he could not figure out whether Filipinos were Asian. Lampton also had trouble appealing to a higher authority. Some judges thought that Filipinos were not Asian, and some ruled they were. It's all about discretion, right? And you have these layers of discretion. And ever since we've tried to have laws enforcing these rules about race, we've had all those ambiguities and all those layers of discretion. And then there was a judge who was probably on to more than he realized when he ruled that, at least in the marriage that he was considering, the whole legal dispute was pointless. Everybody was just wasting their time. Here was the judge's reasoning. You know, this Filipino man who wants to marry this woman who is Mexican-American and who the court clerk thought was was white, well, she's actually an Indian Mexican. And therefore, there's no problem because they're both like not white. Laura Gomez is the author of Inventing Latinos, a new story of American racism, in which she argues that Latinos, the word and the concept, are pretty recent inventions. Of course, it may not be logical that a Filipino man was ultimately able to marry this woman, whose roots in part could be traced back to Spain, when he would not have been allowed to marry a woman whose roots trace back to, let's say, France. This idea of categories, who is a race and who is not, how do you categorize people, how do people identify themselves, all of those dynamics, they're kind of more in play, they're kind of more fluid than we typically think they are. But at this moment in the 21st century, when Latinos are the single largest minority group in the U.S., about triple the Asian population, about 30% larger than the African-American population, and on track to grow a lot in the next few decades, it's worth asking, where does the term Latino come from? What does it mean? Gomez argues, it's an invention that has been used to create real political and social hierarchies, though it didn't get embraced in a big way by the government until the 1980s. Still, it's an invention, nonetheless. 
So the antecedent to Latinos is really the concept of Hispanics. And you see both of those terms still used today, depending on where you go. Uh, For example, in Texas, they use Hispanic more than Latino, but in California, they use Latino more than Hispanic. And different newspapers of record will have their style manual say, okay, this is the term we're going to use or not use. But both of those terms, whether it's Hispanic or Latino, they both have this idea in common that they're an umbrella group and that there are these subgroups, Mexican-American, which is 70% of all Latinos, is one subgroup, Puerto Ricans, that's another 10%, and the various groups from Central America and so forth. Those are all those national origin groups that come under that umbrella term in the way that we say Asian-American, right? Which obviously captures people from a bunch of countries. And we say Native American. One tribe is not the same as another tribe, but we're still linking those people together. And what I conclude is a racial context because of the history that has happened and because of the political dynamics at play. Um, Why did you use the word invent? Because I think, you know, when you're of a moment, people are like, well, these are the categories. These have always been the categories. These are entrenched. Why Why use that word invent? Right. Precisely to pick up on the dynamic that we're talking about, Kara, which is this this notion of a category is not set in stone. It's socially constructed. That means that there are going to be changes in what we think of either the name of a group or what is in that category. Mm-hmm. For example, we have the category white, you know, and today we think, okay, white people, that includes Italian-Americans. That includes Jews. That includes Eastern Europeans. But at one particular point in U.S. history, whiteness did not include those groups. Those groups were at the margins. And so when I use this notion of inventing Latinos, what I'm getting at is that there comes to be a particular kind of political and social need in the U.S. to start talking about this group of Latinos. And some of those pressures come from within the Latino group themselves, and some come from outside it. And all of this kind of coalesced at this moment um, to pressure the federal government to, in the 1980 census, begin counting Latinos for the first time as a group, right? And so that's that moment crystallizes it. So if we could like teleport from, you know, like the 2020s to the 1920s and we started talking to people about Latinos, would they know what we were talking about? No. Okay. No, it just wasn't it wasn't a it wasn't a term that had meaning. And even today, it's not necessarily a term that has meaning anywhere but the United States mm-hmm. because if you go to, you know, to Mexico or you go to El Salvador, You don't need to make that distinction between who's Latino and who's not. That has salience in in our society, right? Right. But in the 1920s, you you would have heard people talking about themselves and other people talking about people who were Mexican. That would have been the terminology that you would have heard. Right. It's interesting because so often when you hear overhear comments or discussion about politics, about culture, we talk about groups of people, white, black, Latino. But if you look at the 2020 census, which is how we count people, how we very officially divide things, and you look under the race question, the choices in the 2020 census were white, black or African-American, 
American Indian or Alaska Native, Asian, or Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander. You kind of notice uh, something missing there. Um, there is a space called Some Other Race, and you can like write in something about yourself. But like, what do you make of those choices? I'll just say it again. White, Black or African American, American Indian or Alaska Native, Asian, or Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander. Right. So what you've just described is the census race question. Let's refer to it that way, right? Yeah. But there's also what is called the Hispanic ethnicity question in the census. And it was always very confusing to people and very frustrating. I'm one of those persons who would be really frustrated by it. Like, I don't see myself in those categories, right? right? right. And I'm not alone in that because if you look over from 1980 when we first started asking that quote-unquote Hispanic ethnicity question to what we predict for 2020, and because this has been so robust, we know that this is going to be the case, about 40% of all Latinos check that last box that you mentioned, which is some other race. So they just look at all these choices, white, black, whatever. They say, nope, I don't see it, not here. Yeah, that's right. I'm not white. I know that I'm part indigenous because of the colonization of indigenous people in the Americas by Spanish colonizers, but I'm not going to say I'm Native American, right? I know that I have African ancestry probably because I know about the slavery that happened in under Spanish colonialism when 12 million slaves were taken from Africa to the Americas. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to say I'm black. And, and now another big chunk of Latinos says that they're white. But if you actually talk to those people, either in surveys or you do follow-up in phone interviews or in follow-up surveys, what you find is those people who say that they're, they say they're Hispanic or Latino in the first question. And in the second question, they say that they're white. Their claim to whiteness is what we'd call soft. Like, they really don't know where they belong. Like, they're saying they're white, but they don't think of themselves as white. So, for example, in one study that a sociologist from the University of Florida, Nicholas Vargas, did, he found that something like 2% of those who said they were white also said other people see them as white. That's really interesting. So those people who are saying that they're white are kind of, it's a default. Mm. Like, they don't really think that people think they're white. They don't live their lives as if they're white, right? Right. Now, that 2% is probably more likely to be affluent, probably more likely to be from certain kinds of national origins, like Argentinians or the Cuban Americans who came uh, right after the Cuban Revolution, right, in the 1960s. But the later generations are more likely to be black Cubans, right? So, So you can find these interesting patterns. But when you look at those numbers overall, what you see is, I call them census white Latinos, right? Because they check the white on the census, but they're not living lives as white. Another 6% of Latinos will check the black box. And, and here's the other thing that's going on. Remember that since the year 2000, we can check as many of those boxes as we want. Prior to that, we couldn't. So there are people checking like three boxes. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But, but what's interesting about that is Americans aren't really checking more than one box most of the time. A little bit more with Latinos than with others who are not Latino. But it's still a really small number. It's like 3%, 4%. 
it's not a large number. So that's not the issue. It didn't, having that option in 2000 did not cause that 40% choosing other to go away, which was what the census was hoping. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm speaking with Laura Gomez. She's a professor of law at UCLA and the author of the book, Inventing Latinos. Quick pause here. We're going to be back to talk more about the world before Latino was a box you could check. And that was a world in which the rules around immigration were very, very different. You can grab this whole conversation on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from GBH Radio and PRX. This is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 2017, a waitress and a bartender at a restaurant in New York launched something that was going to be big. Not that almost anyone could have seen it coming. There's a difference between saying, vote for me, I'm Latina, and saying, Latinos deserve representation and a seat at the table. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was running for Congress, and it was pretty much a shoe leather campaign because she wasn't famous, and her Democratic primary opponent had been in office for nearly 20 years. But Ocasio-Cortez got out there. She met voters. She tried to sway them. Buenos dias. Estoy postulando por Congreso aquí en área. It's just a hustle. It's just a hustle. Ultimately, of course, Ocasio-Cortez won. She won the primary and the congressional seat. And she went to Congress as a Latina politician, a term that might not have been used if she'd been elected in a previous generation. Frankly, it's a term that previous generations wouldn't even recognize because the term Latino only appeared on the U.S. Census in 1980, nine years before Ocasio-Cortez was born. Because prior to this notion of 1980, where we could have this umbrella group, there was much more pressure to choose white or black. Laura Gomez is a professor of law at UCLA, and she's the author of the book Inventing Latinos a new story of American racism. Not long ago, she argues, politicians didn't generally speak of themselves as Latino. They chose black or white. It wasn't just a matter of how do you look? What is your ancestry? Because the ancestry for Latinos is very much tied up in the colonial experience of the Spanish colonizers meeting and you know, sexually and socially combining with the indigenous peoples and then bringing in African slaves and then having all of that combination. And under the Spanish colonial rule, as opposed to under the English colonial rule in the American colonies, mixture was welcomed, Hmm. right? There wasn't a ban on that. So you end up getting this kind of racially variegated. Sometimes you even see it in one family. You know, you see among the siblings who have the same parents, you see uh, quite a phenotypical difference. So so for Latinos, that doesn't end up becoming the definitive. And nor is it always for African-Americans, right? If we look at the complexities, and there's a lot of research on colorism within the African-American community, the discrimination that those who are lighter skinned enact against those who are darker skinned. So 
I mean, it sounds then like politicians of a previous era, you know, people who are much older than like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez might have been, had the, the similar kind of ancestry and just said, like, I'm white or I'm black. Like, did are there examples of people doing that? Yes, yes. Um, one example is um, Charles Rangel, who was a he was a congressman from the Bronx forever, you know, 40 some years, I believe. And that's how he said his name. I'm Charlie Rangel. But it's Rangel. His father was Puerto Rican. Interesting. But he basically said, you know, in the reality that he was growing up, I'm going to pass as black. That's where I'm going to put my my marbles, right? And and he just decided that because of like how he looked like to other people, would you say? I guess, you know, like the contrast is with AOC, right? AOC says, you know, I have African ancestry. I have indigenous ancestry. I have Spanish ancestry. And so did Charlie Rangel, right? He had all of that same ancestry as yeah. somebody who was Puerto Rican. But in the dynamics of New York politics, let's say at mid-century, he felt he had to choose. Hmm. And a counterexample would be Manuel Lujan, who was a congressman representing New Mexico for some, again, like 40 years in Congress. And he was also Secretary of the Interior under George H.W. Bush. And, you know, he would always say, I'm Hispanic and I'm white. It was a kind of a census white, but it was also, look, I'm not Indian, because Native American was a salient identity category in New Mexico, historically, and it is today. Mm-hmm. And I'm not black, so I'm white. It was kind of like, even though you have an accent, even though you were born right near this Pueblo, even though everyone in New Mexico would identify you as Mexican-American, you're going to go out into the world as white. Because it was like a binary world and he was choosing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's a great way to put it, a binary world. So... If we go back, you know, you you said like 100 years ago, people would not know this term Latino. And I mean, I think it's useful sometimes to think about like how different the world is. But if we go back to the early 1900s and we think about immigration, people are coming over the border from the south. I mean, the same dynamics are at play. People are coming over the border from the south. People might be coming on boats uh, from Europe, from Asia. At that time, who was America concerned about in terms of like keeping out, welcoming in, that kind of thing. Right. Well, actually, fascinating, there are two targets. One target is Chinese immigrants. The Chinese Exclusion Act is passed by Congress in 1882, and it prohibits all but the wealthiest Chinese immigrants from coming into the U.S. And so, Interestingly, what you have at that time is the development of a Chinese going down to Mexico and coming up the southern border of the U.S. to get into the U.S. illegally, right? So there wasn't much policing of that border at all. That's why the Chinese chose that route. But the other target, because the Chinese numbers were still not very significant, but the other dynamic is looking to Europe. And the anxiety in 1900 was oh my goodness, we're seeing the wrong kind of Europeans come to the U.S. We're not seeing the Northern Europeans. We're seeing the Jews from Eastern Europe. We're seeing those swarthy Italians. We're seeing too many Southern Europeans and not the Nordic and not the English and and Welsh and, and German, right? Which was the prior stock. So then Fast forward from 1882, when Congress passes this anti-Chinese legislation to 1924, when Congress overhauls the 
immigration and naturalization laws. And they say, we're going to put some quotas and the quotas are going to be only a certain number of people can come from Germany. Only a certain number of people can come from Ireland. Only a certain number of people can come from Italy. And lo and behold, how are we going to decide who can come from what country? How many people? We're going to go back to the 1890 census. Okay. Because the 1890 census predated this influx of the wrong kind of Europeans. Hmm. So, we, you know, when you talked about people from China trying to come, but they can't really come, so they come to Mexico and come over the land border from Mexico into the U.S., does that speak to that at least maybe 100 years ago, we didn't care? I mean, there's so much focus right now, right, on the southern border. It doesn't sound like that's where our focus was. No. In fact, there was no, you know, 100 years ago, we were just creating the Border Patrol. Mm-hmm. And it was like this small little outfit. There wasn't much concern either way, north and south. And Americans would go to Mexico and have always gone south as well, sometimes illegally, <laughs> you know, and sometimes for illicit reasons, um, other times for tourism. There's a long history, actually, of African-Americans in the U.S. fleeing to Mexico, where it was considered to be less oppressive. I'm not at all saying there wasn't racism in Mexico at that time. I'm just saying that it was perceived by these African-American artists as being a freer place, kind of like Paris was. Right. Um, In some ways, it feels like the march of technology in the U.S., factories and, you know, the railroad and all sorts of things. These were the things that were that were pulling and in many ways asking, begging people to come over the border to support these new technologies. Exactly. And when you think about the commercialization of agriculture, the mass production, when you need mass numbers of workers to harvest and you need mass numbers of workers to, say, can a product, like put that that harvested tomato into cans, right? Mm-hmm. That When that technology happens, you need to have those workers on tap. And the pressure to build the railroad, which actually... That actually was where the large influx of Chinese immigration started, and that's that was part of what led to the Chinese Exclusion Act, was, well, there are too many Chinese we let in to build the railroad. Now we want to keep them out, right? But similarly with, with um, Mexican labor, there was always a sense of, we want you here to work, but we don't want you here to vote. <laughs> Let's take our final break here. I'm speaking with Laura Gomez. She's the author of the book, Inventing Latinos. She's a law professor at UCLA. When we come back, how Latinos are changing the political landscape of the U.S., sometimes in unexpected ways. You can find out more about the backstory of some of the politicians that we've talked about here, including Charles Rangel, the former New York congressman who never liked to talk about being Puerto Rican, largely because of his difficult relationship with his father. More on that innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub.
Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1943, a woman in Orange County, California, went to enroll her children and her brother's children in elementary school. But the school officials said they would only take her kids. Her brother's kids were too dark-skinned. They would have to go to the other school in town, the officials said, the one for Mexican kids. Gonzalo Mendez, the dad of the kids who were told they couldn't go to the white school, wasn't happy. The uh, Mexican school had discarded books that were old. Uh, the Anglo school had uh, the newer books. Judge Frederick Aguirre, who retired from the Orange County Supreme Court in 2017, recalled that the two schools, even though they were both in the town of Westminster, they were worlds apart. And Mendez wanted to take the case to court. In the 30s, in the 40s, we didn't have any Mexican-American attorneys. And there were only a couple in L.A., but this, judge, this attorney by the name of David Marcus had already shown that he was willing to take up cases for Mexican-Americans uh, on issues that were very, very uh, uh, key, especially in constitutional law areas. So he agreed to help Mr. Mendez with his lawsuit against the Westminster School District. In 1896, the Supreme Court case Plessy versus Ferguson had established that separate but equal was acceptable under the law. So we have from the late 19th century through 1954, we have basically the stamp of approval on segregation. And typically that meant black-white segregation. Laura Gomez teaches law at UCLA, and she points to this as a watershed moment when a woman realized her kids could go to the white school, but her brother's kids couldn't. And it was an urgent issue in the early 40s as Mexicans increasingly came to California to help pick fruit, of which there was a lot in Orange County, and to do essential work to help the war effort. And so what the Orange County schools start doing is they, they've already got separate black schools. There's not a huge black population in Orange County at the time, but they do have separate schools for blacks. And that's pretty much was the custom all over the United States, by no means just in the South or just in the Midwest, also in California. Um, but what are we going to do, they're thinking, with these Mexican kids, with these Mexican-American kids? Because we don't want those kids going to school with our kids. Gonzalo Mendez, whose sister's kids had been granted admission to the white school, joined with other families in other towns in a class action lawsuit, contending that their kids should not have to attend separate schools. By law, African-American kids did have to attend separate schools, says Gomez, and so did Chinese kids. Mendez and the other families won. It was a case that had a limited effect on changing laws because it mostly impacted the families involved, but it was a warning for leaders across the country, particularly those in California. And it's worth noting who the Republican governor of California was when the Mendez case was decided. Well, it was Earl Warren who would become the chief justice who wrote Brown versus Board of Education. So the state of California decides not to appeal that. There's no appeal of that case. It goes up to the Ninth Circuit, but it doesn't go up to the U.S. Supreme Court. But what actually ends up happening is that Warren ends up signing the repeal of segregated schooling in California as a result of the Mendes decision. Gomez says it changed Warren's consciousness about the problem of second-rate schools with second-rate materials, and that would matter when he became the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Just a few years later, separate but equal was no more. 
Here's Vernon Jordan, who was a kid growing up in segregated Georgia in the 1950s, and he would go on to become a civil rights activist and businessman. In 1951, I'd used a plain geometry book that had been used by a white student in 1935. Brown said that that was over. The hand-me-down tubers that I played in the high school band from the white high schools, it said to me that that was ended. But the Mendez case was not cited in 1954's Brown versus Board of Education. And remember, Gonzalo Mendez's sister's kids had been welcomed into their Orange County Elementary School because their skin was a little bit lighter, all of which underscores a reality. The idea of Latino is an invented concept. And the term itself, as an idea with wide cultural resonance, it hadn't been invented yet back in the 1940s, says Gomez, who's the author of the book Inventing Latinos, a new story of American racism. Instead, the term caught on just in the last few decades. It's something we often think of as tied to race, but when the census asks about race, Latino is not a choice. 60% of Mexican-Americans in Texas record their race as white. Only 40% of Mexican-Americans in California say the same. Gomez points out that many Southern and Eastern Europeans were once not considered white in the U.S. And all these terms are, to some degree, inventions. But that doesn't mean that the fairly new notion of Latino isn't now a major force in American society. Whatever we may call it, right? So we may say Latino with an O on the end, or we may say, you know, Hispanic, or we may say Latinx with an X on the end, because Mm. a lot of, in particular, younger people that I meet at the university level, they prefer that term because it doesn't have that gendered male O at the end in Spanish, right? It's a more you know, it's a non-binary kind of term. So whatever we might call the name and realizing that that's really going to depend a lot on what particular state you were in, what particular, like you said earlier, situation you're in. Are you in your your kitchen talking with your sister-in-law or Mm -hmm. are you kind of on a government form filling something out? I guess what I would say is it's not a question of do we have a choice? That is here to stay. This category is here to stay, and it's here to stay for reasons that are cultural, everything from kind of, if you go back and you look at kind of the evolution of the Latin Grammys, which were meant to be, you know, for Latin music, and you look at the categories of the Latin Grammys, and I did all this research because I was going to include this in the book, but I ended up not having the space to do it, but you find this interesting evolution of everything from northern Norteño, Mexican music to, you know, urban music from New York City in this category of Latin because you find this tremendous diversity, right? So even as you see this diversity, and I never want to eliminate the diversity from even like Puerto Ricans on the mainland and Puerto Ricans in Puerto Rico. Yes, they're Puerto Ricans and yes, they're under U.S. law, but there's tremendous diversity, you know, there and with any other group that you find. But we can't get away from how others are seeing us. And I think in particular, let me bring this back to what you were talking about with the border, right? Because given that 7 out of 10 Latinos are Mexican-American, given that we have just had four years of a presidency 
where being Mexican was openly demonized and where the kind of cycle of rhetoric of the invading hordes coming through the southern border, right? All of that has served to racialize us in ways that we can't go back in time. Hmm. See, we, we can't erase that. So Latino is here to stay in that sense. It's not going away because those negative experiences, that racism ends up becoming a source of positive unification as well, because we say, we're going to fight that, you know? And you can see that in various political movements going on today. Let me ask you about that with politics, because, you know, obviously there was a lot of opposition to separation of families at the border under the Trump presidency. Then one of the things that happened that was really striking was in the 2020 election, Trump made some really substantial gains with Latinos. So like his share of the Latino vote was up 11 percent in Florida compared with 2016. Um, In the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, Hillary Clinton had won uh, by about 40 points. Biden won by 15 points, which is like 40 to 15 is a pretty big drop off. Why did things shift, do you think, towards Trump in 2020? You know, I think a lot of people think, oh, it it would have shifted the other way. Well, I think some shifting did happen the other way in Mm -hmm. different places. So I think that there's a lot that we're still going to be learning about 2020. So, for example, most of the data that you're referring to is data from exit polls. Okay. But exit poll data inherently oversamples Latinos who live in precincts that have high turnout. Well, it turns out that precincts that have high turnout are more likely to have whites. So it oversamples Latinos who are living in white neighborhoods. So not that I doubt those basic trends, but let's put an asterisk by what we know and we're going to continue to learn about the 2020 election. So let me contrast what was happening in Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley, with what was happening in Arizona. Mm -hmm. So in Texas, you're absolutely right that what you see is less enthusiasm for Biden compared to enthusiasm in 2016 for Hillary. And some of that could be also the dynamic of the pro-Bernie Latinos in Texas deciding not to turn out. They were hardcore for Bernie. Exactly. Biden was not going to do it. And Biden was like, you know, Biden was so mainstream, right? Now, Mm -hmm. again, I don't think we know a lot about who didn't vote. But then if you look at Arizona and you look about what the demographics of Arizona were and what the voting were, I think even between 2016 and 2018, there's like half a million new Latino voters in Maricopa County, which is Phoenix. And they're registered because of the left-leaning minimum wage battle that's going on, right? Hmm. And so you see these just different kind of fault lines. But over the longer haul, we're predicting the change that's happening in Arizona. But we didn't predict it as early as that point, right? So so it's not one story. It's like these diverse stories. Um, right, right, right after the election in November of 2020, um, this, this goes back to this idea of inventing terminology and what you do with terminology. Um, uh, somebody was talking about some of these losses, uh, you know, like in the Rio Grande Valley and in Florida and um, for Democrats um, amongst the Latino population. And uh, Ruben Gallego, who is a Democratic representative from Arizona, said, 
uh, this is a quote, first start by not using the term Latinx. That seemed like, you know, you mentioned that term before. I think a lot of people aren't quite sure what should I use. You hear so many different things. And what do you make of that comment? That like that was like the day or two after the election. He said that he was like, just start that there. Honestly, I think that was a strategic mistake. You know, Mm -hmm. that was like a kind of, yeah, he's of his generation and of his circle. He hates that term. And he's. He's pissed off about reporters asking him about the Latinx population, right? You know, reporters who are very rarely Latino or Latina Mm -hmm. themselves. So Mm -hmm. he's kind of pushing back. But I think it was kind of a in the heat of the moment kind Mm -hmm. of response. You know, myself, I would say in my own history, I've gone through quite a evolution in terms of concepts that I use to call myself. And I just consider that we have to have a big tent approach to what people might choose to call themselves and realize that it's oftentimes it's a reflection of the situation that they're in, their particular stage in life, age, and who they're around. And these terms come and go. And so I would not get too attached to any of them. I was going to ask you if you thought Like, is Latinx ultimately going to replace Latino, do you think? I don't think so, if I had to predict, because I feel like the polling still shows that people do not like that term, Latinos themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that some segments of the population do like it, like I said, around younger people, certainly around college-educated people, but I think it's viewed by many people in the group as a darling of people outside the group. Hmm. And so I think to that extent, it gets a little bit tainted. There was a similar move to drop Hispanic and use Latino. And that didn't completely succeed, but it, it has sort of hegemonically succeeded, right? You more often see probably Latino. But if you go to certain places, if you, you know, I go home to New Mexico, I go to Texas, I'm gonna hear Hispanic. And I'm not going to be confused about who they mean, right? Like, I don't really, it's like, I just don't, I just don't worry about that very much. Laura Gomez is a professor at UCLA Law School. She's the author of Inventing Latinos, A New Story of American Racism. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you, Kara. It was so much fun. Let's come back for a few minutes to this issue of politics and how Latinos are helping to shape America's future with another perspective on how the winds may be shifting. Anna Navarro Cardenas is a Republican strategist and commentator. She has been working in politics for about 25 years. Anna, thanks for being here. You're welcome. So uh, you've been working for Republicans in Republican administrations for more than 20 years. Um, Over that period of time, What do you feel like you've seen in terms of Republicans' appeal to Latinos and what that has been and how that's evolved over the course of your own career? Look, there's been a dramatic change, certainly since the George Herbert Walker Bush, George W. Bush days, uh, even Ronald Reagan and Trump when it comes to Latinos. It's a very different attitude. It's a very different strategy. I will tell you previously People like George W. Bush, who had great success for a Republican with the Latino vote at over 40 percent in his second election. 
was about inclusion. It was about Latinos having a seat at the table. It was about naming Latinos to important positions and just making folks feel like they were part of the family, part of the club, embraced and welcomed. It was a warm and fuzzy strategy towards bringing in Latinos, uh, for lack of a better term. With Trump, it's a very different strategy. It was, I mean, I think he'd say it was successful to a point, certainly in places like Florida and even the Rio Grande Valley and Texas. Trump's Mm -hmm. strategy with Latinos is scare the hell out of Latinos. Talk about socialism. Talk about communism. Talk about defunding the police and crime and divide and conquer. So I think a lot of it was also pitting Latinos against African-Americans, trying to build a wedge and a divide there, uh, exacerbate that. And um, it certainly worked in some places. Uh, One thing we see demographically is that with every election, the white share of the electorate declines. So uh, in 2016, 73% of voters were white. By 2020, it was 71%, so just like little by little there. The Latino and Asian shares are increasing quite substantially. Is there a trend, do you think, in terms of who Latinos are voting for? Well, look, Democrats still have a pretty solid advantage when it comes to the Latino vote. Mm. But you can't take it for granted. And I feel like I say this over and over again. No group, and this very much applies to Latinos, is a homogeneous group. There's a huge difference between recent arrivals and people who've been here for centuries, people who cross the border and people for whom the border crossed them, like Mm -hmm. folks from places like Texas, like New Mexico. There's a huge difference between people who fled political repression and people who fled economic oppression. There is a big difference depending on where in the country you live, depending on whether you are rich or poor, depending Mm -hmm. on whether you are college educated or not. There are Latinos that are liberals. There are Latinos that are progressives. There are Latinos that are social conservatives. And Mm -hmm. that when when it comes to family values, to Christian values, are in a very different place. And so I, I think one of the challenges for people who are not Latinos, has been to understand just how different, how diverse the community is. So not only is it the Latino community, there's a lot of different microcosms within that community. People who are maybe recent arrivals from Puerto Rico have very different priorities and needs and experiences than uh, somebody who was here through the civil rights era Uh, marching with Cesar Chavez. And whomever is running Latino outreach and doing uh, and focusing on this in a campaign needs to understand the nuances and minutia of the Latino community. Uh, Laura Gomez talked a little bit about the possibility that part of the reason there was a fall off in support between uh, Hillary Clinton and uh, Joe Biden um, amongst Latinos was that there may have been a, a substantial portion of people who really supported Bernie Sanders and the idea of like uh, a higher minimum wage and a bunch of things that he really came out for um, and that those people were unwilling to make the leap to Joe Biden. 
does that does that have any sway with you? Oh, I think so. I, look, I, yeah. I think there very much are Latino progressives. Mm-hmm. Some of them are in Congress. Sure. You know, so, I mean, some of them were running uh, Bernie Sanders campaign and, and helping on that campaign. And so, yes, I do think that for progressives, for democratic socialists, getting on the Joe Biden train, whether they were Latinos or not, was hard. Mm. It was just a hard thing to do. And some uh, simply didn't get there. I also think some of these narratives that the Republicans drove home very effectively, that Joe Biden was old, that Joe Biden was not going to be in charge, had some influence. I think the fact that Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris, who I think is terrific, and I felt was a very good thing for all people of color, for women, for women of color. But I think uh, Republicans very effectively use that to build a wedge and try to exaggerate the competition, exploit the competition between Latinos and African-Americans and make it feel like if the Biden campaign and Joe Biden was appealing more to African-Americans and putting more effort on that than with Latinos. Again, it was this divide and conquer strategy, but I think where people misjudged is in how effective that strategy would ultimately be. One of the most interesting analyses I've seen, uh, the New York Times did several months ago, uh, looked at uh, how neighborhoods with lots of immigrants uh, particularly Latino, also Asian, um, drifted towards Trump in 2020. And it was true, like, across the board. It was true in Philadelphia. It was true around Orlando. It was true around Houston, around Chicago. What do you think happened? Oh, I think a, a lot of things were going on. Um, look, first of all, not every immigrant wants there to be more immigration, right? There's some people mm-hmm. who have the close the door behind me syndrome. Also, a lot of immigrants A lot of immigrants, certainly from Latin America, from Asia, from other places, have come here fleeing repression, fleeing uh, violence in the streets. And I think the Trump campaign and Republicans used the events of last summer to scare those immigrants groups and remind them of the trauma that they faced at home. And so it triggered an emotional reaction, maybe not rational, maybe not logical, but it's very hard to fight with an emotional reaction. And I, and I try to explain that to people. Look, when you fled socialism, when you have fled communism, as I have, the reaction I have to those attacks is emotional. And so whether they are true or not, it just triggers something in my, in my memory bank. It triggers a trauma that then you have to fight with logic but not everybody does. So I think a lot of these immigrant groups found themselves the targets of campaigns that triggered emotional reactions, mostly based on on fear, on fear and hostility and, and just being very scared of what was happening. A final question for you. Um, do you still think of yourself as a Republican? And if you do, like, what kind of Republican do you think of yourself as? Look, I'm I'm hard-headed and stubborn. Maybe I need therapy. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Maybe part of it is masochism. I just hate the idea. And, you know, here this is a little bit of psychobabble. But uh, maybe because I had to flee my country 
when the Sandinistas showed up, maybe because of that, just the idea of fleeing my party, being forced out, really irks me. So mm. what kind of Republican am I? I'm the kind of Republican that is never, ever, ever going to accept Donald Trump as a leader. I'm the kind of Republican who is never going to stay silent and not condemn racism and division and tactics of, of fear. Uh, I'm the kind of Republican who is not going to lie, is not going to pretend that January 6th didn't happen or that there were, weren't abuses of power, not going to try to whitewash what happened and what we all saw happen. Today, I would lump myself and tell you that the leaders I look up to in the Republican Party are people like Mitt Romney, hmm. like Liz Cheney, like Adam Kissinger. And not necessarily because I agree with them on policy on every issue. On some, I certainly do, but on some, I don't. And that's okay. But I want to know that, that there are people of principle who put country over party, whose primary reason for being is not allegiance to a faux leader and who don't behave like cult members, but behave like thinking patriotic Americans. Uh, and, and so that's, you know, how I'd like to think of myself. Anna Navarro Cardenas is a political strategist and commentator. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you. Have a nice day. On our website, we're going to have plenty of links and data and more reading for you because we've referred to lots of court cases and statistics and all sorts of other things over the course of this hour. You can find that potpourri at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Abby Bagini. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.